I'm Barry Dimelo, and the second reading is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, from verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 2. It's titled, The Ministry of Reconciliation. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to have pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for, for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come in. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, my name's John and I do hope you are all coping well under lockdown. It is a long time to not be together in person, but let's be like that tree that, that grows deeper roots and in this season that our relationship with God will be deepened. 
but we'll be thinking again about our weakness and our frailties as human beings, but yet how God still works powerfully even through us now. Well, let's join our hearts now and pray as we reflect on this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we live out our lives in your presence, remind us once again of your purpose in our lives as we seek to please you. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us understand and apply this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever thought, how important is your life to God? It was a question we discussed in our growth group, in our Bible study just the other week. And we had a really good discussion about it. How important is your life to God? Does he need you? And in our discussion, we had a spectrum of answers. At one end, well, we're not that important. I mean, God doesn't need us. He can fulfill his purpose without us. But then at the other end, we are very important because God uses us even in our weakness. It's a good question, isn't it? Because it's a question about your worth in the eyes of God. It's a question about whether your life will be of any significance. It's a question about whether your life will make any difference in all of eternity. And so what do you think? How important is your life in the eyes of God? Whether you're just a child still, or a teenager, or a young adult, middle age, or older. How important is your life in the eyes of God? Now I suspect for most of us, I think our problem is not that we think too much of ourselves or too highly of ourselves. I don't see any one of us walking around with a big head and thinking, God needs me. And if I'm not around, God's mission, God's purposes, God's church will just fail. Now I don't see any one of us having that problem. I think our problem is the other end. For the vast majority of us, our problem is that we think too small of ourselves in the purposes of God. We don't really see how important we are in what God is doing in the world even now. And we don't see how life is of great significance. Our lives are of great significance to what God is doing. Now, I don't mean we need to grow bigger heads. Of course not. But what I mean is that we need to, in fact, recognize that though we are jars of clay, we carry the treasure of the gospel like what we heard the other week. And today, every single one of us who trust in Jesus, we have been given the privilege to represent the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means we cannot and must not think too small of ourselves if that is our role and responsibility to represent the King. And that is where Paul is heading in this passage. But Paul begins by speaking of what motivates him. He speaks of what compels him in life. What is it that gets him out of bed? And he speaks here of the fear of the Lord. That is a right and holy reverence for God. You see, God is not our mate. He's not like a mate where we can just rock behind him and give him a slap on the back. No, we can't do that. God is God. We bow before him. And knowing that God will one day be the judge of every single soul. You see, the destiny of every single person lies in the hands of God. Knowing this, Paul begins in verse 11. Have a look with me. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. See, Paul is compelled 
by God, to proclaim God, to persuade, to explain, not to manipulate. That is the work of evangelism. You see, you can never coerce anyone into believing. And that's why faith is never blind. But it comes about by persuading, by proclaiming, by showing you the gospel is true. You have to receive it. And Paul was compelled by Christ to do such a task. And so he traveled from town to town to be a herald of such a message, to persuade men and women. Even if it meant being stoned and imprisoned and beaten by rods and exposed to death and again and again. So much so that many consider Paul a bit crazy, a bit cuckoo in the head. It's what he meant by verse 13. Have a look. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. It's a nice little picture of how Christians are meant to be. Well, we're meant to be a bit crazy for God. We are meant to be out of our mind for the sake of God. It's what we see amongst many Christians. In our church, we are partners with 10 missionaries and we count it a privilege to be able to pray for them, to be able to financially support them, the missionaries and their families in, in Europe, in West Asia, in Southeast Asia, in Africa and other parts of the world. But I wonder how many of them grow up dreaming to be out of their mind for God, grew up dreaming that I'll leave the comfort of my country to become a missionary. I'll uproot my young family and be a herald of the gospel to nomads in West Africa to persuade them with the gospel. As a parent, I, I want the best for my family. But to say, well, let's uproot ourselves. Let's go to a place where there is no McDonald's and live in the desert. I mean, you have to be crazy to do such a thing. Well, that is what it means to be a Christian. Out of our minds for the sake of God. But why? Why would Paul do it? Why would some of these missionaries do that? Well, it is because their lives are compelled by Christ. Meaning, Paul's motivated by Christ. He's pushed forward because of Christ. He's controlled by the love of Christ for him. It so shapes and transforms his outlook and purpose. He's not controlled by status or peer approval or comfort or praise or body image or anything else that might control us. And that's why he says in verse 14, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. Why is it that the love of Christ compels me and must compel me and must control me? Because his love for me has meant his death for me. You see, when Christ died, I died as well to my old self. That is the old self that would live for myself. And it's what we symbolically illustrate at a baptism. Now, if you were baptized as a child, you probably won't remember. But those of you who were baptized by immersion, do you know why? Well, we've had baptism in our church before, and you've seen, some of you might remember the big tub that we've used in baptism. I remember once in a baptism, I was trying to keep our sister's head underwater for just a bit longer. Now, she didn't drown, you don't have to worry, but symbolically, it was to die with Christ. 
You see, it is the death of Christ that demonstrates the love of Christ that compels and controls the life of Paul. And it must do for us too. And it has to. Just consider your own life. Your life was shaped by those who love you. Your parents' years of sacrifice and hard work. Your siblings' care and support. Your friends' helping hand. We are shaped by those who love us. But if those who love us had to die for us, how much more would our lives be compelled by that? And of course here, we are talking about the King who died for us. And so a life compelled by Christ is also a life that has been won for Christ. Now I think what we read next might sound a bit offensive. Did you know that if you are a Christian, then your life is not your own? Your body does not belong to you. Your mind, your soul, it does not belong to you. I mean, that sounds so countercultural, especially in our hedonistic society where I live for me and my life is mine. But the truth is, even those who live that way, they become enslaved to the things you're living for. But for those of you who consider yourself a Christian, your life is not your own anymore. I heard one preacher said once, there's no such thing as this is my life or my home or my career. No, it all belongs to Christ. Verse 15. And he died for all, that is, the death of Jesus was sufficient for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so how important is your life to God? Well, it is important enough for his son to die for you. And we should never become desensitized to the extraordinary cost that was. It's why our lives are not ours anymore. It belongs to Christ. We live for him. It is all or nothing at all. You see, our life was one for Christ, such that what happens is that you become a new person when you belong to him. You become a new creation. And this is what we see over and over again when people become a Christian, the most rotten, nasty person who lived a life of violence on the streets, torching buildings and cars involved in drugs, involved in an outlaw bikey gang, can be made new, can be so transformed, have a new creation, brought back to God, reconciled back to God so that he might know of forgiveness and the love which he didn't grow up with. You see, that was the story of a former biker who is now a Prezi minister down in Cranbourne. It's an amazing story, but it is what happens when anyone becomes a Christian. And so that's what we see in verse 17. You begin a new life, which means a new creation. You're made new. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so the shame of the past washed away. The sins of the former life forgiven. The burdens lifted off. The inner joy that now is experienced in the heart of the believer. Words cannot even express that joy. You see, our life, it is compelled by Christ. And it is one for Christ. But what are we one for? What are we saved for? 
Well, we are saved to be the ambassadors of the King, to represent Christ. Now that we have reconciliation with God, that is, we who believe we've got peace with God, we're no longer enemies of God, but his children, which means there is no more fear when we face God in judgment because our lives, we have been saved by him, by Christ. Even when it is laid bare, we have no fear before God. And so our task now given by God is to bring about that peace we have with God to others. And that's what Paul goes on to say. This is our task. Verses 18 to 19. All this is from God. That is the work of new creation. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting men's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, do you start to see how important your life is in the purposes of God? You are saved for God, but you're also saved for a task, the task of reconciliation, the task, the ministry of bringing peace between mankind and God. Now, if you've been watching the news and you're up to date with world events... You would have heard recently President Trump, who was able to broker a peace deal between Israel, the United Emirates and Bahrain. You see, for nations to recognize each other, to be at peace, for their leaders to shake hands, for them to experience now diplomatic relations. It is an extraordinary feat to have peace. But as extraordinary that peace deal was, you've got a greater task. Your task is to broker peace, not between man and man, or woman and woman, or nation and nation, but between humanity and God himself. As you represent Christ, as you proclaim the message of reconciliation, you see, there is no more important task on earth than that, a life to represent Christ, a life as ambassadors of the King, and that is you. I love what someone once said. In his death, he represented us. In his physical absence, we get to represent him. And that should be both daunting and a privilege. It is daunting because as you go to Coles, as you pay for your petrol, as you go to the cafe, as you sit down with your friends, as you greet your neighbor, you do so as an ambassador of the kingdom of God, it is daunting, but yet it is also a privilege. I remember when I was working for the Department of Defense, any international work-related travel, you do so on a diplomatic passport. And the best thing about it is that at the airport, there is a special line for the diplomats. It's a privilege, which I never got to experience, unfortunately. But what greater privilege is this? Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, as ambassadors, we, we don't get to change the message of the king. We don't peddle with it, we don't corrupt it, but we get it as it is and we declare it as it is. 
be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to the God who placed all your sins and all your filth on his son, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Just count all your sins, all your regrets, all that you're shameful of, and for all of that to have been placed on Jesus Christ. This past week, I visited an elderly man who was nearing the end of his life. I was told he won't have many more days. He was laboring in his breathing as we were speaking. And he was able to say amongst many things, which was quite encouraging, but he was able to say, I've committed so many sins in my life. I've done so many wrong things. But because this man believed in Jesus, all those sins have been placed on Jesus when Jesus died on the cross so that he can stand righteous before God. And that is what we see. That is what Paul says, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Our sins were placed onto Christ. Or theologians would use the words, our sins are imputed onto Christ so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what I said to this man on his deathbed. You can trust that Jesus paid for all your sins. It is all done. And perhaps now, for those of you who have yet to believe in Jesus, who have yet to experience the joys of sins forgiven, of burdens lifted, of shame washed, there is an urgency for you to respond. Don't just hear it and dismiss it. The day of salvation is today. That's what Paul urges in our final verses. Look at verses 1 and 2. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I help you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now you remember that story of that former biker, now Presley Minister? He heard an urgent call, just like that the first time he visited a church. He heard the preacher say, If you don't accept Jesus Christ today, you have rejected him. And those words just grabbed him. And he became a new creation. It was the day of his salvation. So a life compelled by Christ is a life one for Christ so that it can be a life lived representing Christ as ambassadors of the King. Which means, how important is your life in the purposes of God? Well, it is very, very important. It doesn't mean we have to be impressive to God. We remember we're merely jars of clay, but we are important. And I suspect hearing this, some of us might still be thinking, well, isn't that the task of the evangelist or the gifted person or the missionary or the preacher? Well, the answer is no, because God has chosen you to be an ambassador of the king. Just consider what Jesus did with his 12 disciples. They weren't very impressive, fishermen, tax collector, just your ordinary common men. But they changed the world and it has never been the same again. And that is our challenge too today. Wherever you go, whatever you say, however you live, you do so representing your king. Which brings a new meaning, doesn't it? 
the next time you pass by your neighbours, they might know you by Bob, but you're an ambassador of the king. The next time when you work and you nurse your patient, they might know you as just one of the other nurses, but you're an ambassador of the king. The next time you tutor a student, they might know you as just Mary, but you're an ambassador of the king. And that is why I think the problem most of us face is not that we think too big of ourselves, but that we think too small of ourselves. There is no greater responsibility we all have than to represent our king. And it has to be that way. Lately, I've been having some discussion with some members of our church. How will we reach the world for Christ? How will we reach Australia for Christ? How will we reach Victoria, Melbourne? How will we reach Surrey Hills for Christ? And isn't that what we're on about? Isn't that what the love of Christ compels us to do? Well, we cannot reach the world, let alone our suburb, if we're not all involved. And I've been thinking lately, will there be a gospel witness from our church, not just after COVID, but in a hundred years' time? What do you think? Well, if there is to be, isn't that up to every single one of us? And so perhaps the next time we run an evangelistic course, maybe you two can think, who can I invite? And I'll come along too. Perhaps that Chaos Theo's mission that was advertised. Maybe that's something for you to pray and consider doing. Perhaps you might like to brush up on how I might share my faith while under COVID. Perhaps you might like to invite a friend to read the Bible with. But whatever you do, you need a bigger vision of yourself, a bigger view of yourself in God's purposes. Not because of you, but because of the King you represent. Let's pray. O oh, Heavenly Father, we pray knowing how easy it is to keep our lives to ourselves to pray only small prayers even though we have a big God, to fail to see how you can use us though merely jars of clay, but yet we are ambassadors of the King of Heaven. And so Lord, please compel us by the love of Christ to persuade men and women of the truth of the Gospel. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.